over vengeance. Last Sunday before the Super Bowl, there was an incredible video um, put together based on Johnny Cash's song reading called The Ragged Old Flag. It was so powerful. I mean, just listening to those words. Because we've been through a season over the last several years, really questions even with the NFL of, of how people are responding to the flag. And I thought, what, what a great way of giving honor. And even though that flag is worn and tattered, as the story goes in that song, it bears the scars of all the different wars it's been through, how it's been raised up, how it's a symbol of, of freedom to our people. And even though sometimes people in office don't uphold their pledge, it says that flag still means something to all of us. And so we raise her up in the morning and we bring her down every night and we don't let her touch the ground and we fold her up right. And I thought, you know, honor is so lacking in our cultures. Like we've lost this virtue of honor. And it seems like we've held up above it the, the value of self-expression, especially if that self-expression is dishonoring, that every person has a right to do that. But there's something in Scripture that calls us back to this old quality of honor that's so countercultural. We operate by a principle that says give honor where honor is due. And if we don't see, feel it's being due, then we don't give it. And so whether it's a business leader who's, who's uh, uh, greedy or whether it's a politician who's kind of rude and crude or if it's a, a pastor or priest who once were very highly respected positions involved in scandals, it's like police officers who maybe have abused their authority. We look at all these people, he says, you know, I give up on all of them. I'm not, I'm not going to have anybody honor because they just don't deserve it. And it sounds logical to give honor where honor is due. But I'll tell you this, it's not biblical. Because the Bible actually says give honor even when honor isn't due. Because what we want to do in our hearts sometimes is give them what they gave us. We want to give vengeance. We want to pay back what they've done to us. And we all have people who have hurt us, wounded us, put scars in our lives. And we carry around this weight within us. And maybe even in our minds have this fantasy of somehow paying them back at some point. Yet Scripture says we are to give honor and not take revenge. I know it doesn't feel right. And it's counterculture to what's being taught in so many places. But we're going to see it so beautifully in the story today in the life of David. One of the things I love about David, he's a man after God's own heart, is that in many places, he's not perfect, but he displays this quality of Christ-like character that just stands uh, like a diamond uh, in, in, the, in the rough, like a diamond against the black velvet. It just shines against everyone else in the culture that this man knows God in a way that nobody else does. And I want to follow David, don't you? I want to have a heart that's after God. And I, and I believe that today's story that we're going to look at is going to challenge us. Because frankly, David didn't have to honor Saul, who was the current king of Israel, if he followed the advice of everyone around him, because Saul just didn't deserve it. Think about it. Saul's been chucking spears at him. Saul's been sending hit men to his house to kill him. Saul's been sending David on death-defying um, scavenger hunts, you know, to get bridal prices for his daughter so that he would get killed by the Philistines. I mean, Saul wants to see him dead. He is not deserving of honor. And yet David does something that's going to blow you away in giving honor instead of taking revenge. Now, at this point in the story, Saul has actually gathered together an army, a special forces group with one mission, take down David. And we start to see this in 1 Samuel chapter 24. It says, when Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. 
Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all of Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave, and the men of David said to him, here is the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. And he's getting advice to take revenge. Yet vengeance is being wrongly validated. It's being wrongly validated. It sounds good. Saul, Saul deserves it, doesn't he? I mean, Saul, who at one time was a pretty good man, but once he became king, he just spiraled downhill. I mean, he, he became egotistical, self-serving, rebellious, defiant, hostile, and even wicked. And at this point in his life, he's being overpowered by this evil spirit at times to attack David. He gathers together an army of 3,000 chosen men of Israel. These are key fighters. This is like the best of the best. I can't take him down, but you guys can. That's your only mission, to go get David. So they go to this place called En Gedi. It's near the Dead Sea. There's a lot of hills around it. It's a great place to hide because of the caves. And Saul goes into one of the caves, says to relieve himself. Now, if you have an old King James Bible, it says he went in there to cover his feet. That's literally, literally what it says, to cover his feet. And so, so many believe they went in there to take a little nap, to get out of the sun, to get in the shade, to take a nap. Almost every other Bible translation, though, sees this as a euphemism for going to the bathroom. So Saul goes in to relieve himself, and what better place than a cave? When I was in Arizona, I worked with a pastor, he's a youth pastor, and he said he took the kids out camping once, and while he was out in the woods, came across a porcelain toilet in the midst of the woods. Now, this is sure bizarre. What's that doing out here? No plumbing, nothing. It's just sitting there. But the next day, he says, I think I could use that. So he decides that rather than find a, a bush, he goes to use this toilet that's out in the woods. And, and he's just relaxed and he's comfortable until he hears voices of kids. There was another church youth group there that day coming through the woods. And he enters into this panic to, uh, to get off that toilet. Well, it would have been better if he would have found a cave, wouldn't it? Unless it's a cave with an army of men inside, which is actually the case with the, with the cave that Saul picked. David is inside there with the group of men. Now, who are these men? We learn about them two chapters earlier where it says David departed from there. After David had left Jonathan and Saul and says, I just got to get as far away as I can. It says, after David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam, and his brothers and his father heard it, and they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him, and he became commander over them, and there were about 400 men. So David's out there just on his own. His family has pity. They come out, the brothers, the father, finally realizing David, David is the guy that God has chosen. But all these other people, the discontents, the, those that are in debt, those that are, that are just worn down, those that are frustrated with Saul's leadership, even the debt, believed, it's believed, was caused by Saul's leadership. All these people with a chip on their shoulder against Saul cling to David. Why is that? Well, last week I told you there's three levels of friendships, and the, and the most basic level of someone who claims to be your friend is your comrade because you share a common enemy, and Saul's the common enemy. You hate Saul, David. We hate Saul, too. We're with you. If you're against him, we're with you because we're against him too. And, and David takes these men and he forms them into an army. They submit to his leadership. He, he trains them. 
They end up going into the, the village of Nob, and David talks to the priest there. His name's Ahimelech, and he gives him um, guidance. And later on, when Saul finds out that this priest helped David, Saul sends his militia in there to not only kill Ahimelech, but 85 or 84 other priests, and all the women, all the men, and all the children, and all the sheep, and all the goats, and everything else. God causes, the, or, or Saul causes them to wipe them all out. Now David's army grows, goes from 400 to 600. So if they're all in that cave, it's a pretty crowded cave, and it's the cave that Saul walks into. Now, I imagine they see this tall silhouette of a figure coming in the cave entrance and go, that's got to be Saul. Takes his robe off. He's going to do business. The guys start whispering to David, David, it's time to end your running. It's time to take revenge. Take out the guy that's been trying to take you out. You deserve to be king. The nation of Israel deserves someone better. God has made it so clear, David. He's right there. He's put him into your hands. It sounds really good. Revenge often sounds logical. And it feels pretty good too. And we can convince ourselves when someone has wounded us, someone has offended us, someone has hurt us, and we carry that burden with us, that paying them back is really the right thing to do for a number of reasons. Number one, justice. Justice. Saul is deserving of death. I mean, he's been trying to kill David. He, he killed the 85 priests of Nob. He deserves to die. That's justice. Justice means you get what's coming to you. You've earned it. You can even cite the Old Testament, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. I mean, I mean tit for tat. He's going to get what's coming to him. By the way, that Old Testament passage, Jesus reminded us, that is not a command to obey. That's a limitation of justice. You can do no more than what they've done to you. That's on a legal realm. But on a personal realm, that's not how we're to respond. We're not... We're not legal officials. We're not the military. We're people in relationships. And we should not lower our standards down to the standards of those who are living ungodly lives. Well, they did it to me first, so I'm going to do it to them. No, that's not what God wants us to do. We live by a higher standard. Sometimes we use the argument of self-defense. I mean, think about this. David, if you don't kill him first, then he's going to kill you. So which is it? Take your pick. Kill him or be killed. That's the only two choices that you have. Sometimes it feels like the only way to survive is to take the other person down before they take you down. Sounds logical. Kind of feels good, doesn't it? And then the third one, it's the God card. I don't know how else to describe it. It's putting God as the author of this opportunity. Surely God is making it so easy for you. It's right there. How, how can you not see this, David? God has opened up a window of opportunity. He knows that Saul's not worthy. He knows that you're to be the next king. Take him out. That's what God's calling you to do. But I have to caution you when, when those opportunities are set before you to ask a question. Has God set me up to move me forward or is Satan setting me up to take me backwards? Because Satan has a way of making temptation look really good. It's to the point where we start to argue that I could do something sinful because God wants me to. I knew a man once who came to me and says, Pastor, you know, I've struggled in my marriage my whole life, but I finally met my soulmate at work. And I believe God wants me to divorce my wife, to marry the person he actually has provided all along for me. And I thought, how in the world can you reason like that? But people do that. God wants me to do the wrong thing because in the big picture, it's the right thing. And God never operates that way. 
That's not how God functions. And David isn't listening to these arguments to take revenge. There's something within him that, that won't let him do it. So here's what David does. It says, then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, and to put my hand against him, seeing that he's the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. I mean, picture this. I hope they'll do a movie of this someday. David's like crawling on the ground. He's moving up, getting closer and closer to Saul. The guys are way back in the cave whispering. He says, I can't. Listen, can you hear anything? Because we're going to hear a scream pretty soon. Get ready for it. And David gets closer and closer, and he takes out his sword, and he just cuts off a corner of Saul's robe. And then he moves back stealthily to, to his men. And they've got, they got to be thinking like, what did he just do? This guy that could take down Goliath, chickened out, taken out Saul? I mean, come on, David. What's going on? Why did you pass up this golden opportunity? And what we're seeing here is how temptation is providentially terminated, how God intervenes and keeps David from committing a grave sin. It is not an issue of courage. David does not lack courage. Look over his life. David's a brave man. That's not the issue here. It's not that he's chickening out. There's something going on in his heart. Something that's telling him, don't listen to all the advice you've got. I know Proverbs says there's, uh, there's wisdom in the multitude of advisors. But I would add one qualification, that the advisors are people after God's heart. Because look at who the advisors are. These, these, these men all have a chip on their shoulder against Saul. So they have a bias. They have an agenda. David, do what we would do. Go get him. That's what I'd do. Go kill him. He's he deserves it, David. And David goes, Ugh, that doesn't sound like the right thing. They even, they even kind of quote that this is what God is saying to you. And David's shaking his hand going, I, I'm not hearing that from God. Even though it may sound right up here, and even though it can feel right in here, if it's not right in here, it's not right. Scripture always trumps our thoughts and the feelings of our heart. And that's why we have to be careful who we listen to. Do you know how you can tell when someone is a good advisor? Because they'll give you words of advice, and then they'll also ask you to pray about it, search the scriptures on this issue, and talk to someone who you consider a spiritual mentor to you. Because if they're not telling you to do those things, they're not giving you godly advice. They're giving you their personal opinion, which isn't, to be honest, worth very much. Sometimes they'll just tell you, follow your own heart, which again, sounds very logical in our culture. But Jeremiah the prophet reminds us the heart is, is deceitfully wicked and sick. God's in the process of remaking our hearts, renewing our hearts, having the Holy Spirit come and reshape it. And oftentimes our hearts aren't in a good place. So what we're feeling isn't the right feeling we should have. And David feels that. It's like this, this alarm's going off. The closer he gets to Saul, he's hearing this beep, 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 beep. His heart's saying, no, 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 don't do it, don't do it, David. You ever feel that? You get close to danger? Get off that website. Change the channel. Don't post that. You know, that little alarm going off, that's the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit working in you. And so David will not do it. And though he has many reasons to take revenge on Saul, there's only one reason why he doesn't. It's not my place. It's not my problem. It's God's. God put him in that position. I didn't. 
And God's going to have to take them out. I'm not going to do that. So I, I'm so grateful that the Holy Spirit can intervene and, and terminate the temptation when we get close to danger. Jesus said when he comes, he's speaking of the Holy Spirit, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Think about those three things. He convicts us regarding sin. What you're doing isn't the right thing. He, he convicts us on righteousness. He convicts us about the right thing. And judgment, it's not yours. You're not to be the judge in this. And if you do wrong, you will be judged. The Holy Spirit reminds us that this is God's issue. Paul actually says in Romans 12, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Don't lower your standards. Don't do evil for evil. Do good. It'll overcome evil. It'll even convict them. It'll be like coals put upon their heads. It'll awaken them to the wrong they've done. Seek peace and leave vengeance to the Lord. He alone is righteous. God alone is able to judge. I mean, think about it. You and I can't even agree on a referee's call in a sports game. Really? Like, we'll argue, that was holding. No, it wasn't. Yes, it was. No, it wasn't. You know, because we have a bias. But God doesn't. God sees things accurate. I'm so glad that God can judge. And David's quality of leadership is shown when he goes back into the cave, and he's got, he's got you know, 600 ticked-off men that, that are very disappointed. And David has to calm them down. Say, guys, calm down a minute. Calm down. Calm down. Here's why. I didn't do it. David is a, a great man of God. Now, you may think, well, Pastor, I would never kill someone I didn't like. I would never, you know, take down someone who hurt me, wounded me. But we do it verbally all the time. Don't we? Verbally, we do it. We say things that are so cutting and harsh. And the Bible says the tongue is a wicked instrument set on fire by hell itself. It says that there's the power of death and life in the tongue. You can wound someone in a very deep way. And that's why Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that you may never be guilty of murder, but you'll be held accountable for your insulting speech. Your words can kill. And David says, I'm not going to be party to this. In fact, listen to the words that come out of David's mouth. It says, afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, my Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put my hand against the Lord for he is the Lord's anointed. See my father, see the corner of the robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. David refuses to do what Saul's done to him. He does the right thing because honor is rightfully owed even to Saul. David is, David is so pure in heart. Get this. He feels guilty over cutting off a piece of his robe. 
I mean, there's no sin in that, is there? But yet David feels like, what I did was dishonoring to you. And I'm ashamed of myself. And David comes out of the cave and confesses it to Saul. Now, if you want to know a little more of David's heart, read Psalm 57, because Psalm 57 begins with an introduction saying, this is the psalm David wrote when he was in the cave hiding from Saul. And at the beginning of that psalm gives us some great uh, insight into David's heart. He says, be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. It's not the cave that's protecting me, it's you. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. What are the storms of destruction? Saul's army, they're coming after me. I cry out to you, God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. I know you will spare me because you call me to be the king. And I'm trusting you to make that come to pass. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. Yes, David says, I, God, I'm in your hands. And so I'm not going to take this man into my hands. David's conscience is convicted. And he comes out of the cave and he bows to the ground and pays homage to Saul. You know, there's a great imagery there because in the cave, in the darkness, David and his men are pondering the evil they can do to Saul. And when David comes into the light, it's like total confession. And the Bible actually uses that imagery in 1 John where it says, when we hide our sin and we keep it to ourselves, we live in the darkness. But if you confess your sins, it's like coming into the light saying, God, I don't have anything to hide. David comes out in the light and says, I'm not going to hide anything, Saul. Here's, here's what's going on in, in my heart and in my mind. Here's what I did. I put it all on the table. Now, this takes guts. You talk about courage. Who's with Saul out here? There, there's 3,000 men who've been told, find David and kill him. I mean, they could take David out right there on the spot. And they don't. Because they're standing back listening to this conversation between David and Saul. And David uses, uh, he approaches him with what I would call respectable confrontation. Do you like confrontation? If anybody's nodding their head yes, you're sick. Because <laughs> confrontation is not fun. We don't like confrontation. We don't like it with our spouses, with our kids, with the customers, with anybody. We just don't like confrontation. Because it usually turns ugly. You know, confrontation ends up like... It's like fueling the fire. And I don't feel good, and they don't feel good, and now it's all worse, so let's just not deal with it. But there is a healthy kind of confrontation. I would call it respectful confrontation. And what makes it respectful is um, I come into it dealing with my issues that I have toward you. See, here's where I think most of us go wrong in confrontation. I, we need to talk. Okay? We need to talk. No, what you're, thinking, what you're actually saying is, you need to sit down and listen to me. That's, that's the talk. I've got to get something off my chest. Here's what you did, and here's why I'm so ticked off, and here's what you need to do. That's, that's how we confront, and that doesn't work. David doesn't do that. Who does David talk about first? Who? Himself. And has David done anything that's comparable to what Saul has done to him? No. I cut off a corner of his robe. I didn't chuck a spear at him. I didn't send an army against him. I cut a piece of cloth from his robe. Big whoop. But David says, but that was dishonoring. He goes to his knees and says, I have, I, I've dishonored you. And I'm so sorry. 
You don't deserve that. That's, you're God's anointed. I shouldn't have done that. David's dealing with his stuff. And then he asked the question, Saul, why do you keep coming after me? Why? What's going on in your heart and head? See, sometimes the best thing you can do is deal with your own issue first and then ask the other person, help me understand why you did this or, or, or why you said that. And that's kind of what David does. He has this, this great conversation. And then he uses such, I call, honoring language. He calls Saul, my Lord, the king, the Lord's anointed. And then get this one, my father. A term of affection to the man who's been trying to kill you? Really? Some of us can identify because you have a father, a literal biological father, who hasn't always been honorable in his conduct. And yet you still say, but he's my dad. I still call him father. Why? Because that's what honor does. That's what honor does. Honor is not based on feelings. It's based on duty and obedience. Just talk to someone in the military. When they honor one another, when they honor their officers, they don't qualify like if he deserves it, if he's earned it. No, you honor the position more than the person. And that's kind of what God says in Scripture. You know, in the Ten Commandments, it says one of the basic ones, honor your father and mother. But then it doesn't follow by saying, if they deserve it. It doesn't say that. A lot of us have parents, we say, like, they don't really don't deserve it. But God calls me to do it anyway. I honor my mother and father because God said so. I honor my boss because God said so. I honor my elders, my pastors, because God said so. I honor, get this, the mayor the governor, the senator, the president, because God said so. Here's what Peter writes. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. You know who the emperor was at this time? Most historians believe it was Nero. Do you know what Nero did to Christians? He covered them with tar and lit them like torches. He threw them into the, into the Colosseum so the lions could eat them to show people that they shouldn't become Christians. That's, that's the emperor. That we are to honor? Seriously? Yes. That's what God says. Honor everyone. doesn't say you have to be their friends. Best buds. You applaud every action. But there's an authority structure that God has put in place that you are to respect. If we love only those who love us, if we show respect only to those who respect us, we are no better than the pagans. We are to be different. So here's what happened, the rest of the story. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son David? So notice how he responds with affection. And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He's broken. He said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I've repaid you evil, and you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds an enemy, will he let him get away safe? So may the Lord reward you for good for what you've done to me this day. And now, behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Because of David being kind, it was like those heaping coals, soften the heart of Saul. Saul now is broken, acknowledges who David is, that David truly is the one worthy to be king. David never grew bitter, never sought revenge. 
And you can read later in the book of 1 Samuel that Saul and Jonathan both end up being killed by the Philistines. In the first chapter of 2 Samuel, David laments both these men equally. He doesn't separate Jonathan, who's, who's his devoted friend from Saul, the evil king. He actually talks about both of them together and uses the same language. So listen to, listen to what David says in 2 Samuel chapter 1, in verses 23 to 25. He says that they were beloved and lovely, swifter than eagles and stronger than lions. And then he cries out, how the mighty have fallen. The toxic person of Saul, the treasured friend of Jonathan, David honors both. David honors both. As we reflect on this story, there's three lessons I take away that we all could apply. Number one, be the first to do the right thing. David didn't wait for Saul to confess and apologize. David took it upon himself. I can't control you and what you need to do, but I can control me and how I respond. And I'm going to do the right thing even if you don't. As soon as he felt convicted, he confessed it. He didn't wait for Saul, who, did it to, who was actually worse toward David, didn't wait for Saul to deal with his stuff, because that's between him and God. But as for me, I want my heart to be clean. Jesus said, deal with the, the, the wood in your own eye before you try to pull a speck out of your brother's eye. It doesn't matter if they've wronged you first or wronged you worst. You be the first to do the right thing. Secondly, bless those who curse you. I'm actually quoting Jesus. He actually said that in Luke 6:28. Bless those who curse you. Do not retaliate. Those who persecute and abuse, he says, to pray for them. Just because someone mistreats you doesn't give you a right to mistreat them. That's why David does an unexpected thing by speaking words of blessing. Remember Jesus on the cross? People cursed him, spit at him. You know, what did Jesus say back? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Maybe that's what you need to say to that person in your life who's wronged you. Father, forgive that woman, forgive that man. I don't think they really realize what they were doing. But would you forgive? Speak a blessing instead of a curse, and then finally leave the judgment to God. David says, may the Lord judge. It's in your hands, God. I don't have all the facts. I don't even know what a righteous judgment is, but I'm trusting that you will do the right thing. And while the Bible says God is love, the Bible also says God is just. It is his role to take vengeance. I'm going to make you a big ask. Some of you have been carrying around hurt and pain for weeks, months, some of you years, some of you even decades when you were little, of someone that's wounded you, broken you, shamed you, and inside your heart, you're so wounded and broken and, and you can't forgive because there's a rage that stirs up and sometimes you even have thoughts of revenge. Like, I, wanna, I want them to hurt like me. I want them to pay for this, Lord. I need to know what I need to do to that person. And yet you know the Holy Spirit's been saying, no, 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 no. Yet, yet those feelings still stir. And I want to tell you, today you can be free from them. I want to share a story with you of a woman who seemed to have a right to dishonor a man. Her name's Corey Tenboom. She was a Dutch woman who hid Jews during the Holocaust. Her and her sister, Betsy, were later arrested, thrown into a concentration camp, punished and tortured. And Betsy eventually died. But when the war was over, Corey came out of prison. And she began to go all over Europe, even the United States, and began to speak of God's grace. And she was in Munich, Germany in 1947, speaking at a church on forgiveness. 
when after the service, a, a bald, big man came walking down the center aisle toward her. And as he got closer, she recognized this was one of the guards from Ravensbrook, one of the concentration camps. This was one of the men that tortured me and my sister and thousands of other people. What's he doing here? He came up to her and met her face to face. He said he'd become a Christian since the war. And he said to her, I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Would you forgive me? She says in that moment, this coldness came over her. Like, how can he dare ask that in one moment of time, I can wipe out all these years, all this pain that he caused so many people just by asking me to forgive him? I don't want to do it. And yet she remembered the words of Jesus where Jesus said, if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. And she realized that to forgive is not an act of the emotion, it's an act of the will. And she said, God, I... I will do this, but you're going to have to provide the feeling. And she said as soon as she reached out her hand toward him, she started getting overcome by this warmth that just, just covered her whole body, this love for this man. And she actually shouted out, I forgive you, brother, with all my heart. And she said she's never, ever in life experienced God's love so intensely as she did in that moment. They held each other for a while there. The prison guard, the former prisoner, united in love. Now, I've heard it said that forgiveness is like this. To forgive is to set the prisoner free and then to find that the prisoner was you. That you've been held captive by anger and bitterness, thoughts of revenge for so long. And God says, today I've come to set the captive free. I want to set you free. I'll deal with that person in time. Yes, justice will be paid. But for you, it's time to let go. It's time for you to extend that hand out. Say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Because when you do, you'll be filled with an overwhelming love for that person. A love that David could feel for the man who just, just days earlier were throwing spears at him. And David could feel like, I still love the man. I don't know what's going on in him, but I love the man. Because God's called me to love him and I honor him. And maybe some of you need to just say to that person, even to their face, words of affirmation. My father, my mother, my boss, my supervisor, my leader, my elder, my pastor. That person in your life, say, I honor you and I forgive. So I'm going to ask you to stand and we're going to pray. And then after prayer, we'll have our prayer partners. In fact, our prayer partners can come up right now and just be ready. Because some of you may need to follow up. It's just a time of prayer and maybe just processing and maybe to shed some tears. But I'm going to ask you today to leave it with God, to leave that person with him and to walk out of here free. Do you want that? Anybody want that? God has that for you today. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you have forgiven us for all our sins. We thank you that you don't want us to carry around this junk in our lives, that our hearts want to be pure. Lord, I pray that you'd fill us with an overwhelming love, a supernatural love that would love even our worst enemies. That's truly Christ-like. Holy Spirit, take over. 
Help us not, Lord, to be trapped in our minds, be trapped in our thinking, to be, but to be obedient to your commands and to let this go and experience true freedom in Christ. Jesus, I thank you that you are all for freedom. And today, even today, some in this room are going to be free from burdens they've carried for decades because of what Jesus has taught them through this man who is seeking God's own heart. And that's what we desire as well, Lord. We want to follow your heart. We want to do the thing that pleases you. We want to shut out the voices of the enemy, the voices of the world, and please you in your voice.